shortest one, and we're going to be looking today about what makes Christianity unique. What is unique about the Christian gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not just what's different about it, what makes it stand by itself among all other religions? What we'll see today is that not that we're going to survey all other religions, but you, you, the, the, just think about the religions that you know of, the message that you hear, they all have a basic common denominator. There's a basic foundation that is common to every religion in the world, no matter how ancient, no matter where it is, west, east, there's one basic common denominator that is basic to all of them, except Christianity, except the gospel message of Jesus Christ. They contradict one another. That's why I say unique and not just different. They, they're opposites. Not only with non-religions uh, that don't use the Bible, that don't claim Christ, but even within what many would say is Christendom. Mormons claim to be Christians. Jehovah's Witness claim to be Christians. You have Roman Catholicism. You have the Orthodox Church. And you have Protestants, and there's lots of denominations, but... What were Protestants protesting 500 years ago? We trace it to October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther took those 95 theses and nailed them to the door at Wittenberg. What was the protest? What was the big deal? Are we just another strain? Are we just another break-off? Just, we just wanted to tweak something a little bit different? We wanted to wear different clothes when we worship, sing different songs? No. It was much more basic than that. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would say Jehovah's Witnesses have a false gospel. That Mormons, as nice as they are, as great as they are, as much humanitarian effort as they put out, they, they have a false gospel, we would say. Not by investigating so much their gospel, but by looking at the gospel message of Jesus Christ when you open up the pages of the Bible and look at it for itself. You see that you can't tweak it without losing it. If you mix the gospel with something else, you lost the gospel. I think we're looked at by many people in the world like, like picky children. You know, we want Jordans for Christmas, and we open up the present, and it's Ewings. You know, I'm dating myself a little <laughs> bit, but you don't want the Patrick Ewings. You want the Jordans, right? It's, and then the parents are like, yeah, it's the same thing. You know, he's a, he's, he was on the dream team. I don't care about the dream team. Jordan, different. Right? Like a picky child. We're just like, no, it's got to be Protestant Christianity. But what a, don't these other religions have things to add? No, we just want to be, we're just like picky children. No. Think about how offended we get when somebody presents to you, travel somewhere else, and the shop says, Chicago hot dogs. With sapping to us, we were in Colorado. Oh, Chicago style hot dogs. I don't know why we went in there like idiots. Expecting it to actually, but it's almost like a challenge, right? Like, you, you're saying you got Chicago style hot dogs in here? We go in there, we check it out, and it's all messed up. <laughs> I mean, if they get everything perfect and there's just no poppy seeds on the bun, we're like, Pfft. right? Like snobby Chicagoans, like, you didn't get it right. If you didn't steam the bun, if you don't get the right peppers on the bun. This isn't the difference between an almost Chicago style hot dog and just missing some peppers. Maybe it's the wrong kind of beef, it's not Vienna beef. The difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the other isms and iterations of it, even within so-called Christianity, 
is not the difference of a missing ingredient. It's like the hot dog's gone. It's like you take a bun, stuff it with a bunch of veggies, and call it a Chicago style hot dog. It's not even a hot dog. That, that's the radical difference. And so you can't just say, hey, let's play baseball, but instead of a ball and a stick, let's use a big bouncy ball and we'll kick it instead. Well, that's not baseball. Well, yeah, we got bases, we got innings, we have people in the same field position, we still have a shortstop, we still have a pitcher, he rolls it instead. You might have a lot of things that look the same, but you lost something crucial. Now, baseball changes. You know, we got replays now. There's little adjustments along the way, but it's still baseball. But there's certain things that if you take it away, it's not a hot dog anymore. If you take it away, it's not baseball anymore. If you take it away, it ain't Jordan's. And with the gospel, something has to stay intact, and it's the thing that makes it the opposite of every other religion out there. If you take that away and do some kind of mashup, then you've lost it. We're going to see what that unique factor is in the opening introduction of Mark's gospel. So if you can turn there, turn to the gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, we'll bring one to you. Uh, We don't want you to take my word for it, so just lift your hand up. We'll bring you a Bible, and you can use the table of contents, or you can flip toward the front. Once you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Mark is the second one in that New Testament lineup. And last week, we introduced the gospel by looking at just verse 1, but we're going to take his whole introduction, which goes through verse 15, this morning. I love how Mark has this quick pace. He's going through quickly, uh, setting up what this message is of Jesus Christ. He says right out of the gate. He doesn't even want to give us the life of Jesus. This isn't a bio of Jesus. That's not what this is for. He wants to give us the message of Jesus. And we get some snippets of his life. But, you know, he's not going to satisfy our curiosity. What was it like when he was growing up with Joseph and Joseph was a carpenter? Did he start telling his dad how to make chairs? He's God. He made wood. What was that conversation like? Did his dad ever have to give him the talk when he was a boy coming up into growing into adolescence? Did his dad have to give him a talk? Or did Jesus, as a boy, give his dad the talk? He's Jesus. We don't know. It just skips right to his ministry. Why? Because the point of Mark is not to give you the life of this awesome man named Jesus. The point of Mark is to give you the message of this God-man, Jesus Christ. That's what gospel means, the good news. So he starts off verse 1, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What makes the gospel of Jesus different than all the other religions in the world? Because we say this is good news, and all of that, they're still stuck in bad news. Religions get the bad news right. Every religion is going to tell you humanity has some kind of problem. You haven't reached enlightenment. You, know, you, you haven't reached peace. You haven't figured out how to meditate. There's something you haven't gotten that you need to get, and the religion is going to offer you a problem to the solution. So what Mark is saying, what Jesus' message is good news because it finally solves the problem for real. And it's the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He quotes Isaiah, which is actually, this is a mixture quote of Isaiah, Malachi. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared. Verse 4 just starts right out of the gate. John is the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy. So what's happening here? The Old Testament prophets prophesied that when the Messiah would come, someone would pop up and prepare the way for that Messiah to come, like setting a table for someone to have a meal. 
or rolling out the red carpet for someone to come out of a limousine. This is John's role. And John is fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy about making a way for the one who is the way. So you see way and path pop up a bunch of times. I send my messenger before your face who will do what? He's going to prepare your way. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness to do what? Saying what? Prepare the way. And what are we supposed to do? Make his way, make his path straight. So way, way, path. He wants you to see that what we're talking about is a path. I'm clearing the path for the one who will give us the path. We're clearing the way for the one who is the way. We see that in places like John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm not pointing to a way. I'm it. John pointed to me. I'm, I'm it. I'm the way. And before Christians were known as Christians, when you read in the book of Acts, they were known as the way. So what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's about the way to salvation. It's about the way of hope, that this is it. This is the way. We finally found the way, and that way is a person. John is going to introduce him to us. So verse 4 it says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He was pretty crunchy, huh? And he preached, saying... After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So you've got this guy who does not read your typical blogs on how to be a hip pastor. He doesn't wear skinny jeans. He's not smoking a pipe. He doesn't wear flannels. He doesn't hang out at Starbucks. Dude is wearing camel hair, eating locusts for snacks, and dipping them in wild honey for dessert. He's out there in the wilderness. Churches all over, like, where can we get a prime location? We love where CFC is located. We've got all these freeways and exits, and it's just easy to get to. We love that. This guy is like, I'm going to go to the most remote location where there's wild animals and nothing to eat but bugs. And everyone's going to him. God is doing something here. He's setting the table for this message to ring clear to people. And you get the sense that people are sick of the temple and the Pharisees with all their rules and you have to do this and you have to do that and if you don't do that, you're not in and the Pharisees themselves weren't following all their rules and they kept multiplying rules and people are sick of it. And then John has a message, but his message isn't, hey everybody, come get a free pass. Forget rules. Forget regulations. Forget a bunch of do's and don'ts. Forget about all that. Come over here. And I'll give you a baptism of do whatever you want. Nope. What kind of baptism does he proclaim? Right there in verse 4. He's in the wilderness baptizing. The word baptize means to immerse. So he's dunking people in water. Whatever water they can find out there. And he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Not forget about do's and don'ts. But we all recognize, if we're honest, that we don't do the do's and we do the don'ts. Sin, transgression, iniquity, whatever big word you want to put on it, it's that we don't do the do's and we do the don'ts. And he's not saying pretend like it didn't happen. He's saying there's a way to erase your past, to cleanse your life of all the wrong, of all the things that you did. Aren't you tired of the treadmill? Aren't you tired of going to the synagogue and hearing more about if you just add another rule to your life, 
you'll follow these rules. Just tack on more do's and don'ts, and that'll help you with the other do's and don'ts that you fail. But then you go home and you just fail those too. And you come back to the synagogue and you start again. You're like, for real this time, God, I'll do it. And you're trying to be a good Jewish boy, and you can't do it. So why are they flocking to the wilderness to get dunked in a river by this guy? Because his message is one that points them to the way that works. And it's a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Verse 4. Then he talks about this one that's coming behind them that's mightier than he is. And he can't even undo the sandals of this guy. Back then, the Hebrew slaves were exempt from having to undo shoes. Slaves had to do everything for you. They're a slave, right? But there were, uh, in, in extra-biblical literature, there were rules that allowed slaves to not have to touch the shoes of their master. Like, slaves have to do everything, but we're not going to make them do that. What are we, barbarians? Don't make them touch the feet, the dirty, nasty feet of the master's sandals walking all up and down the streets, all dusty and crusty. You know, they don't have podiatrists back then, and they don't have pedicures. It's just nasty. Don't make them touch that. That's disgusting. We're not going to make slaves even do that. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy to do that to this man. I wish I could do that to this man. I'm not even worthy to do that. This isn't just a dude. This isn't just a man. Someone who's coming who's mighty. Someone who's coming to fulfill all those Old Testament prophecies to be the way of salvation. Look, guys, I just have water, verse 8. I can baptize you in water. It's a symbol, but it's not the real thing. It's not life-changing. Anyone can get dunked in water and come out and not really be changed. That's great. We can give you a baptism certificate, but did your life change? Well, it's only a change if that outward form matches something that happened on the inside. And that thing that happens on the inside can only happen with the Holy Spirit. Now, who's in charge of that happening? Not John, not a pastor. Jesus. This one to come behind me is not mightier than me because he can bench more than me. He's not mightier than me because he's faster or he's taller or better looking or has bigger crowds. He's mightier than me because he's the Son of God. Verse 1. Who else can tell the Holy Spirit who to change and who not to change? He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, we see one who's coming who is not just a man, but is one who actually comes to fulfill that way that is prophesied. Now, it takes a little bit of a turn in verse 9, and something unexpected happens. This one who is himself the baptizer, we call John, John the baptizer, but he just had water. Jesus is the real baptizer because he has the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Does that make you wonder? Why in the world is John baptizing Jesus? Jesus is, he's God. He should be baptizing John. Why is John baptizing Jesus? In other Gospels, this is, you know, Mark is just too quick. Other Gospels, they camp out, they go, wait, we know people are going to have this hang up, and they unpack it a little bit. But Mark, Mark wants to move faster for you to see a bigger picture. Look at verse 9 through 11. Those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, 
and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Was it a literal dove? I don't know. He says he's using a simile, right? It's like a dove. You ever see something you can't really explain? You use the words that you can. Maybe it was an actual dove. Maybe it just looked like a dove. Maybe it just was the way that it was flapping or hovering or coming down. Something struck him dove-like. The Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son with whom, with you, I am well pleased. Now here's the game changer. And here's the answer as to why Jesus needs to be baptized, even though he has nothing to repent. This is the baptism of repentance. Jesus has nothing to repent. He has nothing to feel sorry for. He has done all the do's, and he didn't do any of the don'ts. He's perfect. But what we see here is Mark is very Jewish. And if you were Jewish growing up, you went to synagogue and you learned the Old Testament scriptures by heart. You knew them. Right? It's like if you know somebody who's a big fan of a show and you throw a quote at them and they go, oh yeah, episode three, season four, big nerd, right? He's writing as a Jewish nerd of the Old Testament. And so he's already quoting Isaiah, he's quoting Exodus, he's using words that make your mind go back to certain key words in the Old Testament so that we read it and we're like, oh, Jesus was dunked by a weird guy that eats honey. But the words he's using... If we knew the Old Testament better, our minds would go back and we'd go, oh, like that? Like when it happened then? Yes, just like that. And he's communicating something with that. For instance, it says when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. That's a very specific word. In the Greek, it's uh, schizane, the word that we use for schizo, when someone's personality is split, right? Torn apart. That's what the word means. And so the heavens didn't just kind of float open. There wasn't just like a hole in the sky. It tore open. It ripped open. It was cut in half. And that word is the word that's used in a famous passage, often quoted and memorized, uh, in Isaiah 64, verse 1. We'll put that up on the screen so you can see it. What's going on in Isaiah 64? Isaiah is asking God, oh, that you would tear the heavens open. So there's the, Jew, the Hebrew counterpart word to schizane, that you would tear the heavens open and come down. Would you please tear open the heavens and come down and save us from our enemies? So here's Mark going, remember all those times we sat in the synagogue and we read and memorized Isaiah 64.1, asking and pleading with God that he would tear the heavens open and save us? Here he is. He's come to save us. This is the one. This is the one that's going to do it. It's also the same word that's used in Exodus when the Israelites are rescued from Egypt and they've got Egypt behind them, the Egyptian army coming up on them and they've got the Red Sea in front of them and they're they're hemming and hawing at at Moses for leading them the wrong way. (laughs) Why'd you lead? We don't have boats. We can't cross this thing. We're dead. They're going to come upon us with their chariots and we're dead. God blocks the chariots with the fire and then what does he do? He schizanes the sea opens it so that they can pass through the waters of judgment without getting judged. Then he lets the Egyptian army go through and he unskitsanes the waters so that they get the judgment. So, your mind is going back, you're like, okay, here's the one, the sky is split open, here's the one that Isaiah 64.1 was asking for, And he's one who goes through the baptism waters as Israel did. 
And what you start to get the sense of is that Jesus is a substitute for Israel. He's a substitute for God's people. Now, if this sounds kind of academic, thick, right, that's okay. I want to unpack it for a little bit. But if you miss this, you miss the gospel. If you miss this, you don't understand Christianity at all. You might as well go to another church. You might as well go to another religion. Because if you miss this, you're back to what every other religion is going to teach you. You can do it. Buck up. Try harder. Meditate a little longer. Memorize some more passages. Spend more time at the temple, the synagogue, the church. Memorize more stuff. Go do more humanitarian things, and karma will come back around to rescue you. They're all using different words to say the same thing. You rescue yourself by the things that you do and don't do. We recognize we can't do it. Can anyone in here stand up and go, I, I, I was about a week or two weeks straight, man, and I was saving myself, and then I messed up. We don't go a day without dishonoring the Lord somehow. We don't love perfectly. So what we need is someone to come before us and do it for us. That's what a substitute is. You read the Old Testament, Israel kept failing. Remember our kids downstairs, they went through the, the Old Testament for the first time in the Gospel Project, and we were hearing reports from the teachers that toward the end of the Old Testament, like, can we get out of the Old Testament already? They fail, God rescues them. They fail, God rescues them. They fail, God rescues them. Over and over, it doesn't matter what you're reading. You read the book of Judges, seven cycles of failure and God restoring, and failure and God restoring. But then you got you realize that the Bible is a mirror pointing at your own life. I fail and I mess up and then I come back to him and then I fail and I mess up and I come back to him. If my entrance into heaven is based on my performance, I'm toast. I, I can't perform consistently enough. We need a substitute. We need one that's going to come before us and replace and do what we couldn't do. That's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's, Mark is thinking back to the Old Testament. Here's Israel chosen by God and no matter how many kings they had, no matter uh, what God did for them, what God revealed to them or how many times God saved them, they would fail over and over and over again. We need a new Israel. Where does that come out? Verse 11, a voice came from heaven and says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Your mind can race back to Exodus chapter 4. We walked through Exodus recently. Some of you may remember when God calls Israel his firstborn son. God tells Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and let them go because that's my son. Israel is my son. Let them go. But he didn't say, and in them I'm well pleased. Because <laughs> what did that son do? Constantly complain. They would make up dreams about how things were great back in Egypt. Man, I wish we could go back to Egypt. Are you insane? You almost died in Egypt. They were killing you back there. No, but I'm hungry. I want food. And God rains bread. He drops quail in their lap. I'm cold, pillar of fire. I'm hot, block the sun with a pillar of cloud. I don't know where to go, leads them. Oh, they were getting attacked. Moses picks his arms up, and God just miraculously wipes them all out, almost without them doing anything. Complain, complain, complain. They failed to the tune of not being going, able to go into the promised land. 
And God's saying, you're going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And in the wilderness, I'm going to test you and prepare you for the promised land. You're not ready. You're too stiff-necked. You're too disobedient. But what do we have? We have a disobedient son who has to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years after coming through the rescue of the Jordan River being split and being brought out of Egypt. They disobey. They have to wander in the desert for 40 years before God can rescue them. Mark opens his gospel. What do we have? We have a man, according to the other gospels, he came out of Egypt, Matthew chapter 2. Jesus came out of Egypt. He's baptized in water. And as soon as he comes out of the water, he's got to go in the wilderness for 40 days. And when he's baptized, the sky is torn open, just like the Red Sea was torn open. In fulfillment of a prophecy, a prayer like Isaiah 64, 1, where God says, now this is my son. This is my son who I'm actually pleased with because he's going to do it. So you see the parallels where Jesus is replacing this failed Israel. Israel can't do it, so Jesus has to do it. And he comes as a substitute. Now we often think about the substitution of Christ as his death. I was supposed, I deserve death because I sinned, and he died on the cross to be my substitute in death. True. But before that death can count for you, he had to live the life that we couldn't live. And so his very life is a substitute. I walk around life failing. He walks around life succeeding. That's why he can be my substitute. So it's not just death for death, but life for life. We see that in the next opening verse. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He's going to be the true Israel now. He's going to get tested in the wilderness. He's going to get tested to disobey. But, because, but while Israel was in the wilderness because of their disobedience, Jesus is in the wilderness to prove his obedience, to be the replacement, to be the sub for us. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, just like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. People get all hung up on, why were there wild animals? It's the wilderness. Right? It's funny when, like, you can take up five bookshelves of people writing stuff on something like that, and you're like, it was a hardcore place to be in. He's out there with the animals. He's out there hungry. He's out there fasting. He's starving. And Satan is giving him all these temptations that Matthew unpacks for us. But the reason why Mark just wants to give you the quick glimpse, he's not getting into the argument about why Jesus was baptized. He's not getting into what exactly happened in the wilderness. Because by backing up, he wants you to see the pattern. And the pattern he wants you to see is that Jesus is coming to be the way by being the substitute. That's how Jesus is going to do it. We need someone to be the new Israel because Israel's failed. The new people of God because the people of God failed. The king that is supposed to come, according to Psalm 2, because kings fail. So Jesus comes. He's baptized. Why? He's baptized because he has to represent all the people behind him that need to get baptized. He has to endure temptation so that he can carve away for those who come behind him that fail in temptation. So he's baptized not because he needs to repent. He baptized to represent those who need to, be, who need to repent. So then when we're baptized and we go down in the water and come back up, we're identifying with his death and his resurrection. Why? 
How can I identify with something someone else did? Because he's my substitute, that's why. He's my representative, that's how. When Satan comes and he comes with his accusations, didn't you do this? God can't love you. God can't love you. You messed up. I did mess up. But Jesus didn't. No matter what was thrown at him in the wilderness and beyond the wilderness, the temptations didn't stop in the wilderness. No matter what Satan threw at him, he, his faith stayed intact. He remained obedient. And he's my substitute. Take it up with Jesus. So that's what Mark is trying to unpack here for us to see. We have one carving the way, taking the hits for us because we can't survive it. And he closes with this line, verse 14 and 15. Now after Jesus was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's the message. Jesus comes out of that experience and now he's coming with his message. He's walking around and telling people the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And what you'll notice there is that he doesn't say repent and do the gospel. Repent and do something about the gospel. You know, repent of it and then fix yourself. No, it's repent and place faith. Faith. Not something you do, but something you believe. And there's a difference. How could I stand up here in the beginning of a sermon and say, no matter what religion, open up an encyclopedia and point to any religion you want, and they're all the same at the end of the day. How can I say that? Because none of them will say, your salvation is completely based on what you believe. If you believe it, you're in. Repent and believe, not repent and do. There's a difference. How is that possible? That can't be possible. Sit down with anybody. Even Christians. I grew up in a church where the gospel was a little bit confused. What they'll say to you is, that, that can't be right because I have to do something, right? How, how can God possibly let me in if I don't, if I don't do something to kind of cleanse myself or, or, or make myself holy? How can that possibly be? And what they're missing is the whole substitute part. Jesus didn't come as a help, as a boost, right? Like you can almost not reach something and your friend comes and gives you a little boost and then now you can reach it. You can go halfway and you need someone to come behind you and just give you a little bit of a boost. That's radically different than Jesus saying, sit down, let me get it for you. That's different. It's not the same. As soon as you take the gospel message and mix it, with do-it-yourself theology. You've lost the gospel because the gospel of Jesus Christ is, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, and what I need you to do is believe it. And the hardest thing for us to do is actually believe that I can't do it. I want to be a part of it. I want to be able to stand up one day and go, so yeah, see, Jesus gave me a boost, but look what I did. Look at how many things I did. Look at how holy I was. Look how many people I helped. I can't wait to get those jewels in my crown. This is when I tithe to the church. And this jewel is when I helped the old lady across the street. This jewel is when I taught my kids about Jesus. And show that off. Open the book of Revelation. What are saints doing with their crowns? They're throwing them down at the feet of Jesus. You did that. That's your crown. You did it. 
I didn't do it. Anything good that I ever produce in my life is because Jesus, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, produced it in my life. It's not me. We can't stand before God one day and go, God, thanks for the help. Thanks for the assistance. I wouldn't have made it all the way. I would have made it a third of the way. I would have made it halfway, but thanks for your help, I made it all the way. No, we're going to stand there and go, I would have been completely dead. I'm not somebody with a limp that needs someone else to put my arm around. I'm someone who's dead who needs to be raised again. So when he proclaims the gospel, he doesn't proclaim what we often hear when we turn on the radio or turn on the TV and we go around and visit many different places, different kinds of churches. This is not the only healthy church in this area. Thank God, there's so many. There's so many. But there are also so many with a confused message, a message of if you just believe in yourself a little more, if you just pick yourself up by the bootstraps, it sounds so American, doesn't it? God just opened the way. You have to muscle up and get through it so you can do it. Sermons have become pep talks, and it's become a self-motivational gospel. If I can just convince my people to believe in themselves a little more and be like that old dude on SNL when he'd look in the mirror with his weird cardigan sweater and tell himself, I'm good enough, you know? Something like that. I don't remember how it goes. <laughs> yeah, Smiley. Yeah, Stuart Smiley, yeah. Doggone it, I'm good enough, you know? I'm just going to convince myself that I'm better than I actually believe myself to be. It's a false message. I can't change myself. I can make little adjustments along the way, but my, my heart is, is bent on not worshiping God. I would rather worship myself or something else. God has to do a work to make me the person that he wants me to be. So the message that we hear out there is a gospel of self-motivation. Do better, do it yourself. Or some of you grew up in a church where it was a rule follower gospel. Your skirts have to be so long. You're not allowed to wear makeup. No cussing, no tattoos, no smoking. No hanging out with a certain crowd. You can't go to the theater. Poker is a sin. Don't shoot pool. Where does all this stuff come from? I have no idea. I don't know where that came from. You can't shoot pool because people that shoot pool, typically they smoke. And if you smoke, you kill your lungs. And your, your lungs God gave to you and you're ruining it. So... Don't do that, so you wouldn't do that, so you don't do that, so you don't do that, so don't do that. Pharisee much? But it's a gospel of self-work dependence. If I make enough rules, rules that I can obey and rules that I can abide by, at the end of the night I can go, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like those other sinners. My body is tattooless. I don't listen to music that's any faster than half a beat per minute. I don't listen to drums, and I feel pretty good about myself. But then one day you wake up and you just feel burdened. Everybody in your church wears white gloves and does the dust test on your life. Ah, uh -uh! I saw you were in a theater. Who wants that? That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't come and clean up your life and make it so pristine that under the highest scrutiny, no one's ever going to find the problem. The gospel is, you don't need that big of a lens to find dirt in my life. But what I'll point you to is the substitute where you can't find it. That's the gospel. 
So we've been confused by the self-motivational gospel. We've been burned by the rule-follower gospel. And then many churches, many religions, many iterations of Christianity have a half-Jesus, half-me gospel. Or Jesus does some of it, and you have to go all the way. This is a very difficult topic, but it comes up especially now that we're celebrating 500 years of the Protestant Reformation. And people ask, you know, what really is the big deal? The difference between Catholicism, Orthodox Christianity, and Protestant Evangelicalism. Can't we all just get along, you know? I get it. There's so much that's the same. It's like the kickball analogy. There's still bases. There's still innings. There's still field positions. There's so much that's the same, but something has been lost. What's been lost? If you have a Roman Catholic church, an Orthodox church, and their message is what Jesus came to do is to take someone who can do stuff but needs an infusion. Christ's grace is infused into your life. Kind of like you're low on blood and you get the IV and you get some blood and drink some orange juice, whatever, and you're like, oh, okay, I'm back. I have my energy. Jesus is a Red Bull, right? You're low, you drink this, oh, I'm up. He's your five-hour energy drink. You can just pop it in and go, boom, I'm going to go, I'm going to perform. That's radically different than a gospel that says, you're not limping along, you're completely dead. You don't need an infusion. What you need is an imputation. That's a big word, imputation. What does that mean? It means I don't have righteousness. It's not like I have a little bit and I just need an injection. Imputation is I don't have righteousness. Jesus does. And there's a swap. It's a double imputation. My sinfulness gets imputed to him. He takes it on the cross. And then his innocence and his perfection gets swapped and taken, put in my credit, my account. That's not fair. It's not what I deserve. If I take my credit cards and ring them up and completely destroy my credit card score and there's someone else who works hard and pays everything and maps everything out and their credit score is perfect, they don't owe a dime, and then you just switch our accounts. Is that fair? No, it's not fair, but I'm free. It's not fair to that guy who had to take my stuff. That's the setup. That's why he comes. Israel can't do it in the wilderness. I'm going to do it in the wilderness. I'm going to come out of Egypt make it through the wilderness, make it all the way so that I can lead my people into the promised land. That's Jesus' mission. That's his goal. You know, when Martin Luther nailed that nine, those 95 theses on the, on the door, some guys in the Roman Catholic Church, they thought, hmm. Some of them actually thought he had some good points, honestly. So they said, let's have a disputation. Let's have a, a sort of a debate. So then he came with 28 theses. This is at the Heidelberg Disputation. 28 points that he said, here's what the Catholic Church is missing. And we need to remember, Martin Luther didn't want to leave the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform it. That's why they were called the Reformers. He wanted to change it, bring it back to what it's supposed to be. They weren't planning on getting kicked out. And so at this disputation, he's going point by point by point. And I want to share point 26 with you. It's short. Here's what Martin Luther says. The law says, do this. And it is never done. The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe this, and everything is already done. The law says, do this, we can't do it. Grace says, believe this, 
And what we couldn't do gets taken care of for us. That's amazing. Now, that's amazing grace. Every other model, I feel like we should change the lyrics to okay grace. Decent grace. But amazing? Why is, why is it amazing grace? It's amazing because he saved a wretch like me. How could he save a wretch? Someone who just sins all the time and can't fix himself. Because Jesus came and took the punishment that the wretch deserved. And then we get the grace that we didn't deserve. So Jesus' gospel is not a gospel of go home and do better this time. Or I'm not letting you in. It's a gospel of believe in the one who did it. And sure, he'll change your life. It's not like we're going to go all go home and start sinning because we're off the hook. Oh, our accounts got swapped? Let me ruin the credit score on this one too. <laughs> right? That's not the message. The message is, wow, this swap happened so that my life can be different. So I don't go out there and try to do the do's and try to not do the don'ts because I think my salvation is based on it. I do it because I'm grateful to the one who rescued me from an impossible works-based system. I cannot save myself in a system that's based on my performance. Someone else performed for me, and now I, I know I'll mess up sometimes, but I want to please him. I want to honor him. Grace is not a tick, ticket to keep, go, to keep sinning, but it's the opposite. It's releasing me from the jail of sin. I was a slave to sin. I'm not a slave to it anymore. I have to do it. I can go out there and live the life I'm supposed to live. Finally, the last thing I'm going to leave you with, and we'll close. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And that phrase, at hand, means it's near, it's next, it's coming. And the message that Jesus is trying to proclaim is you don't have a bunch of time to delay. If you're in here this morning and you're still stuck in a different kind of gospel, if you're in here this morning and your best hope is that you get inspired at church to go be a better version of yourself, you're still lost. If you don't know him, if you're not repented, we invite you to do that. Repentance looks like this. You recognize that you can't do it. You stop praying prayers like, okay, God, for real this time, I got this. You stop praying exchange prayers where you say, okay, God, give me a job and I'll start coming to church. Make my kid healthy and I'll start being better. Rescue my marriage and I'll start tithing. Don't make a deal with God. Here's the deal. You're a sinner that's hopelessly lost. You can't do it. I can't do it. God's offer is if you repent of that, not repenting just of the individual sins. We don't want you to go home this morning and go, okay, God, yesterday I did this at 3 p.m. The night before, I think right around 8.30, I said this to my wife. I shouldn't have done that. No, no, no. Why do you do those things? There's something broken underneath that causes us to disobey God, and that's this sinful nature. Repent of that. I am wayward, I'm broken, I sin, I, I, don't, I don't worship you the way I should. Would you rescue me from that? Because I cannot rescue myself. That's repentance. And then where do you place your belief? You don't place your belief on your performance, you place your belief on Christ's performance so that you're assured of salvation. Let's pray.